Welcome to the Princeton Evangelical Free Church Podcast. I'm John Padno, the lead pastor here at PEFC, where it is our desire to equip people to grow together in Christ. Our hope is that this podcast is a help and an encouragement to you this week. May God bless you as you listen. Tommy Case. I have the privilege of serving here as the associate pastor. And before we kind of dive into the sermon this morning, I just want to give a couple of brief announcements. Uh, first of all, I want to invite you to not only coffee and conversation after the service this morning, but also want to invite you to stay downstairs in the gym where coffee and conversation is for something we're calling table talk. And if you're familiar with engage groups, which we normally do after the, uh, the first service here, This is a replacement to that. So we're inviting all age groups to come downstairs into the gym, sit around one of our circular tables, have a cup of coffee, and just continue the conversation. Continue the conversation of what we talk about this morning during the message. And so uh, I want to invite you to do that and and be a part of that. What I also want to invite you guys to be a part of is a new Sunday school elective that's coming up on October 6th called Navigating Our Digital World. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through this book uh, about uh, the challenge that parents face in regards to to technology, right? That's one of the biggest things that I hear as a youth pastor from parents is how do we navigate, how do we raise our children in this world that is so plugged in to technology? And um, so I want to invite you, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or even a prospective parent, uh, I want to invite you to be a part of this class. Uh, there's sign-up sheets out in the foyer uh, at the welcome desk, but you can also sign up online. The cost is $10, and that just uh, covers the book. So I uh, would love for you to do that. That's going to be from October 6th through November 17th. Well, hey, with that being said, we are continuing our series in which we have been looking at and diving into some stories from the book of Acts. In fact, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab those, or electronic device. Uh, why don't you open it up with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we're just going to dive right in this morning. We're going to dive right into our scripture passage. And for the sake of time, we're going to be uh, going through uh, a number of, of verses here. But I'm, I'm not going to read all of them right now, but I'll read a portion of our text. And then as we work through the sermon, we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more here. So again, we're in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this uh, sermon given by the Apostle Peter. And Father, 
we know that in all things, nothing can be accomplished for your kingdom without your spirit. And Lord, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be made present and real among us in the same way it was amongst the apostles and amongst the the crowd of Jews that Peter preached to that morning. Father, we just pray that as we gather that you would make yourself known to us in a real and powerful way. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Things did not look good. And that is because on all accounts, things were not good at all. The Battle of France was in full swing. France, that historic European country, was being invaded by the ever-expanding and ever-threatening empire of Nazi Germany. And by how the conflict was going, how the fighting was taking place, it seemed very likely that France was going to fall that France was going to be taken over by the Nazis. Things did not look good. And it's with this in mind that Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, stood before the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940, to give a report on the situation. And as you can imagine, the morale of the leaders sitting in that room was at an all-time low, and the feelings of discouragement, despair, and just fear for what lied ahead were at an all-time high. And so Churchill was faced with the task of presenting a realistic assessment of the situation while also instilling a sense of confidence that eventual victory was, in fact, attainable. He started his speech by saying, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny. If necessary for years, if necessary alone. But what he said next would change course of history. Take a look.
Now, Churchill's address is commonly ranked as one of the greatest speeches of all time. And I think one of the things that makes a speech truly great is when the audience comes into the speech thinking or believing one thing, but after they hear the speaker speak, they leave thinking or believing something completely different. And in Churchill's case, his audience came into his speech with a uh, sense of discouragement and of fear and of questions about the future. But they left with a sense of pride in their country and hope that they could, in fact, prevail. Aristotle, who is the famous Greek philosopher, had had a, a, a belief that there were three elements that made a speech Uh, truly great. There are three things that make a speech a great speech. The first is uh, logos, which is logical argument. There needs to be some sort of logic in play. Second is ethos. There has to be, uh, the speaker has to somehow build credibility with the audience. And thirdly, there has to be pathos, which is emotional appeal. The speaker needs to somehow get at your emotions and somehow draw you towards what argument he's trying to make. Speeches are effective in persuading and changing the opinions of their audiences almost always have these elements in them. And so I want to do this morning is I want to show you how Peter, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, because that's the most important thing about his speeches, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. How he, through the Holy Spirit, makes a truly great sermon, truly great speech that compels an incredible response. His audience comes in with a hostile attitude towards Jesus, but they leave completely changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Peter, in this passage, makes a persuasive defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how he does so is something that I think we can all learn from and apply to our lives. So through Peter's sermon, we can see that the resurrection is logical, that the resurrection is credible, and that the resurrection is personal. It directly affects your life. Does that make sense? You all on the same page? Great. Well, hey, last week, Pastor John uh, shared with us the incredible equipping of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Through this incredible instance, the apostles were given the tool that they needed, namely the person of the Holy Spirit to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is evidenced by the apostles preaching to the diverse groups of people who were gathered at the Jerusalem temple, speaking to individuals and groups in their native languages. But the response to this outpouring of the Spirit was mixed, right? Some were amazed, while others mocked it saying that it was just the alcohol, they were just drunk. And so what Peter has to do in beginning his sermon is he has to demonstrate to these Jews that the resurrection makes sense, that it is logical, that this isn't just some sort of mass chaos taking place, but rather it is something that should be seriously considered. So let's dive back into our text again this morning. Let's If you would read along with me, let's start here at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, 
let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So Peter first begins by demonstrating that the resurrection is logical. It is logical. So first, Peter engages their minds. This is the logos of Aristotle's model, right? He, he says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. In other words, listen up. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. Think critically about what I'm going to tell you. And then he provides a logical reason for why the apostles aren't drunk. And that is, is that it's simply the third hour of the day, or in other words, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Now, I realize that there's people out there who party hard, right? But most of those folks are usually sleeping at 9 a.m. anyway, right? So uh, typically, you know, in, in, for, for, in, especially in those days, Peter's saying, look, guys, breakfast is typically at 10 o'clock. So we haven't even had breakfast yet, let alone lunch. It seems irrational that these people would be uh, uh, drunk. Doesn't make sense. And so he first begins by responding to the mocking comments on drunkenness, but then he transitions into the logical uh, explanation for what is going on here. And to do that, he points them back to the Old Testament, namely to the uh, prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter 2. Now, I want you to remember here that, that Peter is addressing a primarily Jewish audience. And so for them, they have this background of being familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially those that spoke of becoming Messiah. And knowing this, what Peter does is he walks them through Joel's prophecy to explain to them what has just happened. Let's look again here in verse 16. But this is what was uttered to you through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that, you did, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. So as Peter is explaining what is going on in their current day, what, what this instance of these incredible tongues uh, is, he walks us through the prophecy of Joel. I. Howard Marshall, who is a biblical commentator, points out a couple of themes in the prophecy that I think are helpful for us as we look at it. So the first element of, of Joel's prophecy is that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people. And specifically what that means is that the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on all kinds 
a people. So it's no longer going to be the way that it used to be, which was that only important people like prophets, kings, and priests would receive fillings of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is available to all who ask. And the evidence of this, is, of this outpouring on all kinds of people is uh, the witnessing of prophecy and visions. As the text says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it is this very thing that the people have just witnessed in their midst. They have just seen this, namely the prophecies and the witnessing of the miraculous uh, being done at being preached to them in their native languages. A second theme in the prophecy is that there will be cosmic signs that will serve as evidence that the end is drawing near or that the day of the Lord is coming. And the signs and wonders are both what they have just witnessed with the apostles, but it's also what they have seen with the Lord Jesus. As he says in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or who there was clear evidence for to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So do you see what he's doing here? Do you see how he's kind of forming his argument? He is in many ways, he's trying to connect the dots for these Jewish people to see that Joel prophesied about these things and, and Jesus did them. And the apostles are doing them. You've seen what Joel has prophesied about. You have witnessed with your own eyes what Joel told would happen so many years ago. These signs have, and wonders have been performed not only by the apostles, but also by the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus has ushered in this new age of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. Peter is saying that if you look at the evidence, it all makes sense. But there's more than just a logical fulfillment of the Old Testament happening here. There is a credible source, a reliable source, that supports all this as well. Let's look what he has to say, verse 24. <clears throat> God raised him up, that is Jesus, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
He has poured out this that you, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the second piece is that the resurrection is credible. It is supported by a reliable source. This is Peter's ethos. And for this, Peter brings in the big guns, namely King David. And if you aren't familiar with the Bible or you just need a little refresher, King David uh, is, is one of the most important kings in the history, history of Israel. In fact, he may be the most important person in the history of Israel. And David is important for a couple of reasons. So first of all, he is considered by the Jewish people to be the ideal king. He is the gold standard of what it means to be a king and that he was both brave and successful in his leadership and in battle. But also the thing about David is that he was a man after God's own heart. Even though he had his faults and he had some major ones, King David was probably the most complete king Israel ever had. Not only that, but he had a close connection to God and he was not just a king but he was also a prophet as well but there's something else about David that makes him a big deal you see it was from David's line in which the promised Messiah was meant to come in fact the title son of David is a title that Jesus both used to refer to himself but also that other people called him saying that he was in fact David's son that he was in fact the Messiah. And with this in mind, with King David's credibility in mind, Peter uses David's words in Psalm 16 to make a critical point. David says in verse 27 that God will not abandon his soul to Hades. He will not let his soul stay dead, in other words. But Peter points out that David is not, in fact, talking about himself because everyone in the room knows that the dude's been dead a long time. People know that. It's clear that David is, is, is dead and, and he is, in fact, in Hades, so to speak. And so instead, in this passage, it's clear that David is prophesying about the coming Messiah who will not die or will not stay dead. As Peter explains in verse 31, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades. This Jesus was raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Why is this important? Why is it important that that? that Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. Why is the resurrection so significant here? The reason that is if Jesus is alive, then he sits at the right hand of God. And he is at work within the lives of those who have received the promised Holy Spirit. As Jesus promises his disciples in John 16, he says to them, when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
Jesus is alive and at work within the disciples. God did not abandon him to Hades. Rather, has, he has poured out his Holy Spirit on all who come to him. But there is one more powerful argument that Peter gives to his audience, and that is, is that the resurrection is not just logical or it's not just credibly supported, but thirdly, the resurrection is personal. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? There is an emotionally moving aspect to Peter's sermon as well. Look how personal Peter makes his message. He says in verse 23 that even though Jesus was clearly evidenced to be God in the flesh, you crucified and killed him. And in verse 36, Peter says that he was most certainly both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what is interesting to me is that most of the people who Peter is talking to, most of the people in that crowd, legally speaking, were not personally responsible for the death of Jesus. They were not personally responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Yes, many of them may have been in that crowd on Good Friday morning shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Those folks were most certainly there. But it's highly likely that many of them weren't present that morning. Yet still, as Marshall again comments, Peter's hearers took his words as applying to them personally. They took it as a personal address to them. They had a, and they had an emotional response to it. And how do we know that they had an emotional response? text says they were cut to the heart. They were moved with emotion and sorrow. And it's for this reason that I think Peter is talking about something more than just the actual act of putting Jesus to death. He is talking about the weight of sin that Jesus had to bear on the cross for our behalf. On our behalf so that we could be made right with God. Although many in Peter's crowd, and certainly nobody here this morning, is personally responsible for putting Jesus to death, the fact of the matter is that Jesus died to atone for, to pay for our sins, to pay for your sins. As we talked about this summer in our our series on 1 Peter, uh, in chapter 2 it says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. He bore the weight of our sins and the sins of the whole world when he was on the cross. But that includes your individual sins. That includes your 
sin nature. That includes the things that you've done in rebellion against God in your past. That includes the things you've done in your rebellion against God in the future. And that includes the sins in your life that you are engaged with right now. Jesus died in your place. Because of our sin, Jesus had to go to the cross. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you so much he gave his son for you, and it's all in spite of your sinfulness. It's all in spite of who you are on the inside. The song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, has, is one that I have always found to be personally impactful, and I think it demonstrates this whole idea well. As the song reads, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's a gripping picture in my mind of the fact that although I was not physically present in that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, I'm still a part of the reason why he had to go to the cross. Christ's crucifixion is not just an event that happened many years ago and has no relevance to our lives today. It's personal. It involves you. It, it involves your sin. And although that might seem like bad news, it's actually at the very same time amazing and incredible news. Look at how Peter responds to the crowd when they are convicted of this. Again, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart in verse 37, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort and encourage them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter's audience was so compelled what he had said to them, they, they asked the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? You can almost just hear the desperation in, in, in their voices. And Peter's response to them is very simple. It isn't overly complicated. There's not a whole lot to it. In fact, it can be summarized in two actions. First of all, repent and be baptized both of which are expressions of faith. Repentance, I would argue, is more of an internal expression of faith in which you in your mind and in your heart change 
the entire direction of your life by confessing your sins and submitting your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, 1 John tells us, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Baptism, on the other hand, is more of an external expression of your faith in which we publicly proclaim that Jesus has in fact transformed us and that we have died to sin and that we are alive in Christ. Again, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. That's definitely a reality. But it means that we are publicly declaring that we are submitting ourselves to Jesus and his will for our lives. What's interesting here is that Peter doesn't separate the acts of repentance and baptism, but really puts the two actions together. And this is not to say that baptism is necessary for salvation, but rather it is to say that what has happened in your life internally should be expressed and shared externally and publicly for others to see and be witnesses to. With that in mind, I just want to invite anyone here that if you've never in your life, if you would say you're a Christian, but you've never taken that step to be baptized, I want to invite you to do so. I want to invite you to uh, take that step and, and, and make it public. Make it public that you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus. And a great opportunity for, to do this will be about a month from now. We're going to be having a uh, baptism service on October 27th. Um, we're we're going to baptize anyone who wants to put, publicly express their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And so if you're at all interested in that, I'd love to talk to you. I know Pastor John would love to talk to you. Um, and, and we'd love to sit down with you and talk more about baptism as well as um, how we can really make that happen for you. We'd love to do that. But as we close this morning, I want to end by noting how the resurrection, not just the crucifixion, is personal to you. And that is that the benefits of what Christ has accomplished on the cross that is dying for our sins, that these benefits are available to us through the resurrection. He has conquered sin and death. He died for your sins and he's risen. He is victorious over them. And if we put our faith and trust in, in, in him, we can live with him forever. There's that promise of, of being in heaven with him. And this offer of salvation, it's not for a particular group. It's no longer for a particular group of people. Jesus died for all. As Peter drives home in a number of places in his sermon, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And at the end, the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone who the Lord call, or God calls to himself. The resurrection is personal. Because you have been invited to call upon the Lord for salvation. What we see in this passage this morning is the powerful testimony of, a, of, of how Peter's sermon on the saving power of Jesus Christ brought 3,000 people into the kingdom of God. And the reality is, is that the same power exists today. That lives can be transformed by the saving power found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
that same truth exists today. So I want to do this morning, if you would all pray with me. If you're here this morning and you have never made that statement of faith, maybe you're, uh, you've kind of always wrestled with it, you've always wondered if, if this gospel is real, you've always kind of wondered if, if Jesus is really the Savior. But if you, after hearing Peter and after hearing his words through the Holy Spirit, if you this morning want to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, I want to provide you this opportunity. And so uh, with every eye uh, closed and every head bowed, I just want to pray, I would just want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Father God, I am a sinner. I know that you died for my sins. And you died in my place. Father, I confess my sins to you. I ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, I want to declare this morning that you are the promised Messiah. That you have power over sin and death. And you rose from the dead. Father, I put my faith and my hope and my trust in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you would just uh, stay there for a minute, I just want to invite, if there's anyone in this room who prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, and um, would you mind just raising your hand? I could see you. Awesome. Awesome. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you sent your son to die for us. And even if we've heard this a thousand times, we thank you that you are still at work in our lives today. Father, we just ask that this morning that you would empower us with the same Holy Spirit. That you would give us boldness to share this gospel, to share this love of Jesus Christ with those around us. It's your wonderful and beautiful name that I pray. Thank you for listening to today's podcast and consider subscribing and sharing with others. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please go to princetonfree.com. God bless.